Welcome to The Intersection. This is the first episode of the new year, 2021. My name is Mark Riley, and I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. There is certainly a lot to look at in the wake of the riot at the Capitol building this past Wednesday. There's so many aspects and facets of this, I think we have to take them kind of sort of one at a time. Let's start with this. The denunciation of violence by enablers of soon-to-be former President Donald Trump are hollow gestures offered by cowardly politicians. You had people who decried the violence and then turned right back around, almost in the same breath, and challenged the results of some of the swing states at, of course, Donald Trump's behest. That's cowardly, folks. Absolutely cowardly. Talking about people like Senator Ted Cruz, talking about people like Senator Josh Hawley, and others too numerous to mention in the House of Representatives. These people lined up behind this grifter right up until the point when they didn't. And keep in mind, that people were getting off the bus and still are getting off the bus left and right. Cabinet officials, uh, members of Congress who said they were down with Donald Trump right up until the riot. And then suddenly they're no longer, they saw the light. They suddenly realized. And let's be very clear about this. Donald Trump's enablers in politics, in media, all the way around, bear a great deal of responsibility for what took place at the Capitol. And again, there are people, people who are straight up liars, like Kayleigh McInerney, who, by the way, has barely been heard from since the siege at the Capitol. And all of these people need to be called out and called out publicly. Now, as you heard all of them decry the violence, how many of them did you hear actually take any responsibility for the violence? And I'm talking about the people, I'm not talking about people who were against Trump, whether they be Democrats or Republicans. And yes, there were Republicans who were willing to stand up to Donald Trump even before the November 3rd election. But let's put them aside for the moment. Let's talk about some of the people, and I'm talking about a good number of people, better than 100 in the House of Representatives who decided that Trump was their guy and they were going to go down with that sinking ship. They knew good and well what was coming. All right. It's not necessarily, maybe they didn't all know that a, a bunch of people would storm the Capitol, but they knew what Donald Trump was trying to form. Donald Trump knew what he was fomenting. Keep in mind, he told that crowd, as did his son and Rudy Giuliani and the rest of these people. He told these folks, well, I I may come right with you and go to the Capitol. Of course, he did not. He and his family got in a room. I forgot where it was, but they got in a room where it was really doesn't matter. They got in that room and they looked at the storming of the Capitol on television and thought it was a, you know, a good gesture. Why would Donald Trump think this is a good gesture? Because as far as he was concerned, it was about him. 
And that's the part that continually perplexes me about Trump voters. Now, I've seen some of the people that stormed the Capitol in the media, people, you know, reporters walking up asking them, why did you do this? And we'll get into some of the non-answers to that question and others shortly. But it comes back to, for me, the idea that none of these people, none of the people in Congress anyway, had the temerity and guts to stand up and say, you know what? And I'm talking about at the time. I'm not talking about a couple of days later. I'm saying they should have stood up at the time and said, my God, I was so wrong about this entire situation. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry to the people of America for whatever role I may have played in what took place on Wednesday. You don't hear these people saying that because they're not that honest. They're politicians, after all. Now, I've called it a riot because I'm not nearly as concerned with some people, as some people are, with whether it's called a riot, insurrection, coup attempt, sedition, whatever. I don't care. It was a riot, plain and simple. And I say that because I have been in protests many times in my life. When I was much younger than I am today, I was involved in a violent protest, not a violent protest that my side necessarily started, but it got violent. You know, it was a confrontation with some construction workers in lower Manhattan. They had the weapons, we had the numbers, (laughs) and it was ugly. It was truly, truly ugly. So I know what violence is like. I know how fast it can spread. And I know the role that policing is supposed to play in keeping two sides that might become violent separate from each other. And that obviously did not happen on Wednesday. Look at the images of thousands of people storming the seat of the national government. Those images speak for themselves. We ought to establish a couple of other things as we assess this riot. I mentioned Trump didn't march with these people. I really believe, aside from the fact that Donald Trump in his heart is a punk, I really believe that Donald Trump has no empathy whatsoever for the people who follow him, who support him. I don't think he cares about them one way or the other. I don't think he'd spit on them if they were on fire. In fact, there was one report I saw that said that the one problem Trump had with all those people in the Capitol was that they weren't dressed well or something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing here. Now, What is Donald Trump's end game here? God only knows now. But we know that since November 4th, his end game has been to spew false claims about a stolen election and try to use every means at his disposal, whether it be in the courts, with outlandish evidence-free claims that got blown out to the tune of, I believe it was like 60 to 1, I think he won one case and it wasn't enough to negate the results of any of the swing states that he challenged. So it is all about 
his trying to, I don't know if he's convinced himself, maybe he has, but he's definitely trying to convince his followers that they were robbed. You hear people hollering and screaming about cancel culture. Donald Trump has created a grievance culture, a culture among his supporters that says, I have been wronged that all these things, the changes that are going on in America, the diversity, the tolerance of LGBTQ rights, all of these things somehow hurt Donald Trump's supporters who are over, overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly, it seems, trying to hark to a day where they had a privileged position in American life and they see it slipping away from them. They see their power being eroded and the vehicle to exercise those grievances happens to be the president of the United States. The president of the United States. Now, among the people who predicted Wednesday's riot and Trump's responsibility for lighting the fuse, one of them is a guy named David Sirota, who's a journalist, I believe he's still based in Denver, brilliant guy, who's been saying for a long time that this had the potential to happen. The other person that mentioned it, and I didn't see her enough on television, I saw some print interviews with her, was none other than Mary Trump, who wrote a book about her uncle that, in addition to savaging him on many levels, analyzed his personality and came to the conclusion that he might not go quietly into the night after the November 3rd election. November 3rd it was two months ago, two months and change ago. And still, he keeps spewing the same nonsense. Now, there's been a great deal of talk on certain levels about whether Trump's cabinet should start the ball rolling on removing him via the 25th Amendment. And certainly, there is also a move afoot a move foot that may actually uh, take shape and manifest itself as early as this coming Monday. And that's talking about impeachment. Now, I'll admit, it's tempting to try and impeach him again. It's tempting to invoke the 25th Amendment, even though he doesn't have that much time left. And the possibility of precluding him from ever running for elected office again is an extremely, extremely tempting one. And under normal circumstances, I'd say, yes, this is worthwhile, even though he's not in office that long. However, these are not normal circumstances. We have a pandemic on our hands that demands our collective attention. Going back and forth over whether a grifter should be removed from office is just for me. And it's just my opinion. It's not at the top of my priority list. It just isn't. I mean, I understand why it is for some people, but it's just not at the top of mind. I believe the new Congress and the Biden administration need to get to work putting together, first of all, a package of relief measures for people who are suffering throughout the country. Did you see December's employment numbers down 140,000? 140,000. And people were quibbling about whether they should send a 600 or $2,000 stimulus check, 
Get the $2,000 done yesterday. Issue two and priority, well, actually priorities one and one A. The other one is the Trump administration promised at one point that they would in fact vaccinate 20 million people by the end of 2020. They of course missed the mark by a lot. It is now up to the incoming administration to make good on that pledge. And perhaps set a date, end of January, latest mid-February, where there would be 20 million vaccinations across America. To start the baby step process of saving people's lives. To me, that's the important stuff. And it's the stuff, by the way, that would do the most good for the largest number of Americans. Quibbling over what to do about Donald Trump is not a way to unify Americans. And, and keep in mind that there's been a lot of social media chatter about another protest at the Capitol on January 17th. So it's entirely possible that this is not over yet. Now, I don't know what you think about this, but I think we ought to say this should be over by now. But it won't be. It takes time to change people's minds about things. And at this point, I understand there's the issue of self-pardoning, which he has reportedly discussed with AIDS. There's already word, this is something to think about. There's already word that he regrets saying he was committed to an orderly transition. Can you imagine that? The head of the free world says, I am upset that I agreed to an orderly transition of power between myself and an incoming administration. Of course, he's also highly upset that Twitter banned him. A bunch of different sites, portals, etc., have banned him. It's kind of, sort of unprecedented in American politics. Why did they ban him, Twitter? And what took him so long? The man has been straight up lying. And by the way, he's got something like 88 million followers. 88 million followers. Now, it seems more and more people are realizing that you really cannot take this shyster at his word. Make no mistake, there must be, must be accountability for what happened this past Wednesday in our nation's capital. The question is, who do you hold accountable? We'll get to that next. This is The Intersection. last episode, I spoke about retribution. That is, retribution against those politicians and others who aided and abetted 
Donald Trump, in his efforts to overturn Joe Biden's electoral victory. Some people took exception to the term retribution. Now, you know, I, I used it because I meant it, all right? Let me be very clear about that. I'm not taking the word back because I think in politics, retribution, first of all, works. And I could tell a story about that, but I'm not going to hear. Um, but some people thought, I guess it was too harsh. So in light of what has happened this week, how about we change the word to accountability? Let's start with the people who broke into and ransacked the Capitol. Law enforcement, I know, is studying CCTV footage of those who did this. And some of them have already gotten arrested. Some of them in their hometowns. They need to be held to account as the criminals they are. You know, a lot of these people holler and scream about law and order and how dare Black Lives Matter complain about the police and blah, blah. And what did they do? What did they do? They committed random acts of lawlessness. And they could stand up and try and justify it. Oh, well, we're not being listened to. Oh, we've been cheated. Wah! Grievance culture at its absolute worst. Absolute worst. So bust them. Every single person who can be identified needs to be arrested and they need to be charged and charged quickly. There must be consequences for what was done to the people's house. You know, the strange thing to me, and again, this is my anecdotal conclusion in terms of what I saw in ter- with, you know, some of the people that got in there and were running around like they were on a sightseeing tour, carrying Confederate flags and this and that and the other. But when they were asked, like, well, what, what are you doing? What are you going to do? Why are you here? What's your plan? They didn't have a plan. I guess they thought that by breaking into the Capitol, they would stop the vote to certify Joe Biden's win, which of course is done by electors, the Electoral College. I guess they thought by storming the Capitol, they could stop that process from happening. It may have taken a marathon session, but they failed. It's as simple as that. What was their political goal? Was it to convince some wavering Republicans to back Donald Trump's play, to back Donald Trump's false claims? They called many people, including Mike Pence, for God's sake. They called him a traitor. Now, I ain't no Mike Pence fan, okay? Let me be very clear. I am not a Mike Pence fan. But he was Trump's boy for the longest time. And here, because he wouldn't do something that he could not legally do, Trump supporters, you know, he might as well have been Che Guevara to them because he wouldn't do what Trump asked him, and eventually demanded that he did. So they failed on that. Maybe they had a message. But what was the message? I don't know. 
Some of those people didn't seem to know what the message was either. No matter. They may not change their political beliefs, but swift prosecution of those who broke into the Capitol, broke windows, grabbed, uh, and actually the guy that sat behind Nancy Pelosi's desk and took a piece of her mail, he's been busted. The guy that took the lectern and, and was posing with the lectern, he's been busted. So the one thing, and, and these people all deserve a fair trial, innocent until proven guilty, all of that. But justice in this case must be certain. Next thing you got to assess is law enforcement's response to the riot. There are reports that some officers from the Capitol Police did not exactly cover themselves in glory. Now, I say that knowing that Officer Brian Sicknick lost his life trying to keep order in the Capitol. So this was obviously not all the Capitol Police. But there was footage of some cops running away from the protesters. There are also reports that some cops actually opened barricades to the rioters and at least in one case took a selfie with one. Those actions, if true, demand both personal and group responsibility. Head of the Capitol Police has stepped down. Okay, fine. But what provisions are not just the Capitol Police, but the National Guard, I'm sure many of you may have heard by now that the governor of Maryland was begging the Defense Department for permission to send in the National Guard, and they didn't, he didn't get it, not right away. He finally ended up getting it from Mike Pence, you know, St. Michael. Here's the problem. The cops that turn tail on those protesters need to be selling insurance. They don't need to be cops, period. And of course, having these people on the force really stains the legacy of the cop that died, Brian Sicknick. He did his job. He lost his life. He was a true hero. There really needs to be, there needs to be accountability within the law enforcement community. Not too much to ask, I wouldn't think. And perhaps some of these people, when they think about what they've done, will start to ask why Trump said he'd go with them to the Capitol, only to punk out and watch the riot on TV. And as we total who should be held to account, how about we take a look at Trump's legal team, you know, those elite Groups of Rudy Giuliani, L. Lynn Wood, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis, and Cleta Mitchell, who apparently had been working for Trump on the down low for a good while. She's since exited the bus and exited the Milwaukee law firm where she was a senior partner. All these people should find their law licenses in serious jeopardy. As it is, Sidney Powell is being sued for $1.3 billion by Dominion Voting Systems. You remember them. That's the company that she dragged through the mud with ridiculous allegations. Their actions and public positions, and I'm talking about Giuliani's so-called elite 
what did he call it? The Elite Strike Force? Whatever it was. They led as directly to Wednesday as Trump's actions did. They need to be held accountable. And not I'm not crazy. I'm not saying they need to be held criminally accountable, although there's some people that might disagree with me. I don't think any of them should be practicing law ever again in life. And those, and I said this before, the politicians, members of Congress who stood with Trump, and by the way, we talk about politicians, there was a West Virginia state representative that stormed the Capitol. He's since been arrested, by the way. So there may be some justice in the world, but an elected official had the temerity to stand with these people. Absolutely crazy. But you see, when it comes to accountability for politicians, there are two ways that happens. One is at the ballot box. Very simple process. Either you get reelected or you don't. And if there's a God, many of these people will be serving their final term in office, whether they be in the Senate or in the Congress. But in the meantime, most, if not all of them, the Ted Cruz's, the Josh Hawley's, the rest of them, they have bills they want to pass because it would help their constituents. With Chuck Schumer installed as majority leader, those bills should never see the light of day. Same thing in the House. Those Republicans who chose to ride or die with Donald Trump should also see the fruit of their bowing and scraping. And again, you know, 2022 is a year away now. All the House and some of the Senate is up for re-election. Why don't we make that the subject of the kind of organizing that got a black guy and a Jewish guy elected in Georgia to the United States Senate? Now, for those people who think that banning Donald Trump from Twitter is some sort of First Amendment issue. I might say this to you. The First Amendment, which, by the way, I practiced my trade under for a very long time, does not mean that a company has a, an obligation to carry what you do or what you say. All right? Many of you, I'm sure, have been to restaurants, especially during the summer, that say, no shirt, no shoes, no service. In other words, if you can't put on some shoes, if you can't put on a shirt, I don't care if it's a t-shirt, we're not serving you in this restaurant. That is a decision, a legal decision, made by the owner of the restaurant. And I'm not the person that brought this up. Mark Cuban brought this up. I think it's important to note. If you can't abide by Twitter's rules, Twitter has every right to ban you. You have no First Amendment right to be on Twitter. You may think you do. Just like Josh Hawley seems to think he's got a First Amendment right to have a book deal with Simon & Schuster. It is utterly, utterly ridiculous. It's time for people with some sense to take the gloves off and fight to win on every possible front. I believe it can be done, and it looks like in some quarters, it in fact is. When we come back, a serious shout out to HBCU. This 
is the intersection. It's Mark Riley with the intersection of politics and culture. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and I thank you again for listening to this podcast. I'd like to know what you think. Leave a comment on my Facebook page, or you can email me at mark at markreillymedia.com. Not too long ago, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris came to the union where I worked, 1199 SEIU, and I shout out the baddest union on the planet. Kamala Harris at that time was running for president and participated in a forum with a panel of union members. When it was over, she did the usual meet and greet. You know, politicians do that, shaking hands with the people present. When she came to me, I shook her hand and I casually mentioned to her that my wife, executive producer Kim Jack Riley, attended Howard University. Kamala Harris's face lit up like a Christmas tree. She did, she explained, go bison. Now, I had heard my wife talk about this go bison thing before. I really wasn't clear about exactly what it meant. I mean, I know what a bison is. I really didn't know that that was Howard University's mascot. It was then, however, that I realized that there's a bond among graduates of HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. I've always respected these black-run institutions, but it dawned on me that if I was talking to someone who was a graduate of the college I attended, it would have been, oh yeah, that's nice. Yes, folks, HBCUs are special, and the vice president-elect isn't the only one who should take a bow. Newly minted Georgia Senator Raphael Warnick, Reverend Raphael Warnick, is a Morehouse man, and Stacey Abrams, whose tireless organizing paved the way for two Democratic senators from Georgia is a Spelman grad. All too often, we tend to look at HBCUs in terms of athletic prowess or their marching band. Fact is, these black colleges and universities have always produced brilliant thinkers, scientists, and mathematicians. I'm not sure how many people know the full extent of HBCU's contributions to American life. And now, after all this time, I understand why HBCU homecomings are the stuff of legend and why this special moment in time politically belongs to them. Well done, HBCU. The executive producer of The Intersection is Ms. Kim Jackrod. Music is by Vexento, Bella Chipperfield, New Eurekan Soul, and Walter Hawkins and the Love Center Choir. Until we meet again, please stay with me.